Welcome to the BIOS podcast by Elix Ventures. BIOS is a community of early stage healthcare and life sciences founders and investors. BIOS curates content, hosts events, crafts resources, and creates a community to facilitate collaboration. BIOS unites like-minded members of the startup universe and is anchored by Alix Ventures, a San Francisco-based venture fund that invests in early-stage healthcare and life sciences companies. To learn more about us, visit bios.community or alix.bc. Welcome to the BIOS podcast by Alix Ventures. My name is Jimmy Tian. We are in the middle of some crazy times right now, with the COVID-19 pandemic affecting our daily living and creating an inflection point within both healthcare and life sciences. In this conversation, I'm joined by our guest, Dr. Ian Tong, the chief medical officer at Doctor On Demand, who has been really busy dealing in real time with this pandemic. He's board certified in internal medicine, completed residency at Stanford, and his medical school at the University of Chicago. Kamal Obad, co-founder and CEO of Nebula Genomics, joins the conversation as my co-host. In the discussion, we talk about the coronavirus outbreak and the future of telemedicine. Dr. Ian Tong, it's really nice to have you on the podcast. Oh, thank you guys for having me. I really appreciate it. COVID-19 obviously has taken over the news, taken over our lives in the Bay all across the world. How has telemedicine played a role in helping combat this pandemic? Well, I, I, I've been calling, that's a great question, uh, Jimmy, and I think that uh, we, that we have really, what we've really seen here is that COVID-19 or coronavirus um, in the novel, novel form of coronavirus uh, has really been the most disruptive event, right? It's been the most disruptive healthcare event probably of my lifetime, honestly. Like, I, you know, this is, I've never seen this before. And so, um, and it just happens to be that it's high transmission rate and the lack of the lack of a treatment or vaccine or the lack of a you know, need to be in the same room as the patient for any sort of therapeutic intervention. And the fact that a doctor can assess a patient clinically, remotely in a, in a virtual visit, in a video visit, all of those things are really, um, really the perfect use case for, you know, this is almost like a, um, a pandemic or, a, or an epidemic that was built to showcase what a telemedicine infrastructure could do in response to a global health crisis. So we are, so, um, you know, my, some of my friends have joked with me, so Ian, way to go, you know, I'm getting these texts, way to go. I, you know, you went all the you went there, didn't you? You went all the way to, in, to create a, a virus, you know, that could showcase the use case of telemedicine. And, and then my, um, my closer friend said, yeah, they don't know you well enough. You're not clearly smart, clearly not smart enough to do that. But, uh, it's just, uh, I don't mean to make light of this though. I think you guys know, but you know, given that I spent my entire day for the last like six days in a row, um, thinking and preparing and planning for this, uh, a little, you know, a little joke here or there is hopefully warranted, but, um, but you know, we have a serious health condition. It is, uh, it, it is going to be deadly for and fatal for certain parts of our population, the vulnerable patients in our population. And the main thing here that we're dealing with is really a population health or public health response and telemedicine is an outstanding way to, to offer patients access when they can't go in or they're not, or when they're being discouraged from going into an office, uh, because that's where the disease is transmitted, right? So, so uh, healthcare workers are at risk. If you go to a healthcare facility, you're at risk. And so now what we are seeing is that the sites of care, and I said this at the very beginning of this, of the appearance of COVID-19 in, in the United States, Sites of care are going to become sites of transmission, and I think that is true. 
and telemedicine could prevent that. And so we just need to reorganize and restructure how we see the implementation of telemedicine across. It's, it's no longer going to be telemedicine. This is just part of our care model now. And we need to, um, we need to make sure that, uh, that virtual care is integrated into that um, so that we're better prepared for these responses. Can you walk us through what the clinical workflow looks like as a physician seeing or screening patients for COVID-19 virtually? Something uh, specifically to add on to Jimmy's is I'm curious a little bit to hear about the triaging process for those patients that do need to be seen in person. Great question about um, how do we how do we evaluate COVID-19 patients, both from triage standpoint, and I would say, uh, you know, almost like risk assess, you know, how do we do a risk assessment on them? And then what is the clinical, the the synchronous video visit clinical scenario like so on this one first of all what we are doing and we actually will release this tomorrow is a clinical assessment that does risk stratify the population so that a patient will know at what stage they are um they are at whether their their symptoms are mild and then we'll give them feedback on that whether their symptoms are worsening um, or whether their symptoms are severe and we are um doing that at the platform level because we created an early risk assessment that that actually just kind of identified the vulnerable populations and over a hundred thousand people hit that within like the first two days so so to do it and we you know and, and no healthcare system can see that many people in two days so so we realized that if we had a more robust assessment tool that's the first triage level is like allow in this instance we want patients to self-triage we want them to be in the right place we also want them to have a, a clear idea of what the plan is for them. And so we are creating a tool that will do that for them in real time um, to adjust to the spread that we're seeing across our nation. That's one. And I think doing that at a platform level shows you what the power of a digital health tool can do. Then the next level, what does the assessment look like when you actually do get in? So ideally, you're seeing the sicker patients, patients with symptoms who are fitting into that mild but worsening symptom category, you know, mild going to moderate. And so at the moderate level, uh, there's really four questions that you have to ask. One is, are the symptoms of this patient severe enough that they warrant inpatient stay or an in-person visit? If so, then you send them there. Second, it is, it, uh, this is an illness that is difficult to differentiate from flu. So is this an influenza-like illness? And is Tamiflu an appropriate treatment in this case? Thirdly, does this patient need to be tested or do they warrant testing and will they qualify for testing? And I think the qualified for testing is an important question right now because of the testing resources that we lack right now in this country to do this uh, relative to other countries like South Korea and others. But are they warranted or qualify for testing? And do they require public, you know, reporting to a public health official as a confirmed case or suspected case? And then fourth, how long should the isolation be? And, uh, and there's various, we can get into the details of that if you guys wanted to, but I think those are the four questions that you need to answer or that any clinician should take when they're approaching a, a patient for this, um, for this pandemic. Does Doctor On Demand follow up with local testing or treatment centers to, to get the actual test result and then use that to then loop back into the triaging platform? Yeah, so that's a great question also. So we do use, uh, we are in coordination with the CDC and with public health professionals and um, HHS. So, and Walmart is involved in this, um, but that's not been announced yet. But we have worked with the CDC early on, all the way up until like about three weeks ago, we had a meeting with them. We, uh, we actually submitted our guidelines, our specific guidelines to the CDC two weeks ago that Dr. On Demand was using. 
and uh, and then we actually have another meeting with them tomorrow. So we have been very you know, in lockstep dealing and working with our public health professionals at the national level. In terms of reporting at the local level, we are sending patients that we think qualify for testing to local sites uh, that are either identified by the public health professionals or that are allowing for drive-through um, and pre-authorization of testing. We are filling out forms where those exist and we are identifying those sites as they pop up and when we're communicating to them, uh, uh, to the patients um, and to our care team where these patients can go for testing. The problem has been that we just, and I think this is because of the available testing resources, we've really not been able to, we, we, most of our patients, basically almost 99% of the patients that we have identified we think are at risk actually have been denied testing or have been sent back to us. Wow. So we are seeing a, you know, we, we are seeing patients that we think may have this, but we are not able to get them tested because of the resources or the sites are saying that they're not going to do the test based on the telemedicine evaluation, even though the telemedicine, you know, this is the, uh, the preferred pathway for evaluating these patients. Um, they're seeing their own volume in person and they're saying, well, we, we might have to use our resources for that. And so I think we really got caught flat footed here and after action of this pandemic is really going to have to include how are we going to do this better? Do we have the proper resources? And, um, you know, and can we spin up testing sites much more quickly? Because we lost two very valuable weeks in this epidemic um, without having anywhere to send people for testing. Lack of testing really is concerning. And, and I've heard of doctors whose spouses have tested positive, and yet hospitals are refusing to test them, even though they're still expected to show up to work. And that's pretty scary. It's, I think, well, and I think, yeah, it is scary and I believe it. Um, we've seen the same, you know, and so we just don't have the, this is, this is a system issue and the system does not have all of the pieces in the chain linked together. And so that's where we're seeing, um, and, and I feel bad and I just talked to my doctors about this, but they are caught in a little bit in the middle. The, the patients are lost in the system and the, pay, and the doctors are actually caught in the middle uh, with nowhere to send the patients for the testing, but ask, being asked to manage the conditions. And so, um, so that's just, you know, I just think we all just need to be compassionate towards the physicians in this scenario as well. Uh, certainly there's empathy for the patients, but also, you know, as a physician, I'm feeling it. And for my practice, I'm feeling it, how difficult it is to provide clear messaging and concise messaging and a clear plan to patients when um, we don't have the resources so, so is, the, is the recommendation to patients just kind of self-quarantine, monitor the symptoms, see how things yeah, we are, we're almost in Yeah, we're almost in a situation now where the recommendations are going to be, if you can't get testing, we will try to find you testing when it becomes available. But if it's not available, you will just remain in this COVID-19 you know, COVID undetermined state, and we will manage you symptomatically. We have built in a predetermined default five-day follow-up. For the, for the mild, uh, mild and or worsening, mild to moderate patients. And, um, and that's the best that we can do right now. And then seeing those sicker patients when they come back on, or when we see them in follow-up, if they are appropriate and the symptoms are worsening, we may send them for in-person care. But, but it's almost like there is no in-between. There's no testing modality right now that we can send them in the interim. So it's going to have to be a clinical decision that's made. What is the criteria for the 1% of your patients that are getting accepted for testing? Is it clear exposure to someone who was infected? Is it like where they traveled? Yeah, it, it, it start, it's changed over time, uh, Kamal, as we've seen this because um, 
because the guidelines have changed. So what we started out with the original, you know, uh, travel history, PUI, the PUI, patient under investigation criteria that the CDC first put out. But as we saw spread, even uh, local spread and community spread, well, as soon as community spread occurred in, in the U.S., we saw the need to, to make some changes there. And so really now it's if you're coming from a, uh, an affected area and there are multiple regions now, I mean, just multiple regions around the country, whether New York, Aspen or Denver, Colorado, Seattle, the Bay Area, South Bay, especially. So we are seeing, you know, we're seeing our clusters. And, and so we are running a map and our doctors have an active uh, link to a map that they can use to see if their patient that they're seeing is near a cluster because we actually have geolocating of the patients. We can, we can see where they are. Um, and it tells us where they are, and so we can map them to the, the, the cluster location um, where the virus is active. It's age 65, vulnerable populations, uh, healthcare workers, I would say, are, the, are those big yeah. categories. And uh, I, I know uh, there's a few companies out there that are exploring at-home testing. Is that something you guys are looking at? I think Everly Well, for instance, is launching something in the next week or two. Uh, at least they claim they are. Yes. So look, yeah, and I I do know some of the folks over there um, and Everlywell and other companies, um, you do test, you know, there are companies that offer in-home testing very similar to like the 23andMe, uh, mail you the kit and then they, you can then collect the the sample is self-collected. There may be challenges with the self-collection of the sample, to be honest. That's, That's not a I know some people are like, it could be easy, but it, you know, it's, it's something that people probably need to be shown how to do with a video or something, if not coached by someone showing them how to do it um, remotely. Yeah. But, but the, point, the important thing there is, though, but they can be shown how to do that, I think, remotely, um, or they can watch a video and hopefully they're able to collect it correctly and then, um, and then submit. But yes, we are talking and working with those companies, but, the, you know, but it, they're, not, they're not ready yet and, and don't have the tests in mass yet. So, sure. But I am, but I do think that is an interesting part of this after action that should, we should look at. We should look at the ability to notify a, a testing source and really push this ability for patients to, to self-collect. I do think that's an important part and we should learn everything we can right now about the ability of patients to do that accurately. And we should test, and I think we should do some follow-up testing with patients to see if the testing is accurate right? Because we, there's no point in doing with an, in, with a test that's inaccurate or not valid, right? So we mm-hmm. should, we should validate the testing, but also validate the collection method of being able to do it in the home. Yeah. That's going to be very important for the next important infection that we get. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. We do, we do at home collection, just like saliva samples and tons of problems that you run into, no matter how simple it is, right? Whether it's a cheek swab or yeah. spitting into a test tube. Um, I think a lot of these at home Corona tests are even more complicated than what you do for like uh, like the 23 me test for instance. I mean, a nasal, yeah, to get a nasal swab is much yeah. harder to me than yeah. spit in the test tube. I mean, yeah, a throat uh, swab or something. Yeah. Yeah. So this is hard, right? People, yeah, for getting a swab, but people drink something and they don't, they forget. I mean, it's just, yeah, it's a, uh, it's, there's nothing that is foolproof, but, but I think, um, but I do think we need to have that ability, right? We need to, we need to wor- be working on that and make sure we perfect that so that it just becomes commonplace. Like I said, it's, it shouldn't be an, a novel thing to get a telemedicine visit or a virtual care visit or to do a self-collection of a sample. I think we all are going to have to get to that point uh, so that we can leverage these modalities um, at their highest value. Doctor on Demand's demand has probably gone up quite a bit during this time. Are you, are you guys at capacity? How does that look? Yeah, no, we are, we are definitely seeing activity put at, at capacity um, what we're seeing is, is really, um, but we're doing a great job of keeping up, to be honest with you. I mean, we, 
I think this is because we have a fairly flexible team. They are able to, um, as I said, make changes at the platform level and at the, and at the exponential increase that we have seen, you have to be able to do that. So if you got, I mean, you, if you think about where we are, this all really happened in the last like 12 days. I mean, just, but, and honestly on our platform and the awareness of telemedicine as the modality, that is even more recent. I mean, it wasn't until just a few days ago, about five or six days ago that the president and the vice president and, and the news started saying telemedicine, telemedicine, telemedicine. So we have seen a increase or spread across our entire demographic in this country, young and old, all of us and, and male and female, all of a sudden turning to doctor on demand and as registering accounts and getting prepared. And that's, that's what they should be doing. But yeah, we are operating. We have never seen this. Our platform was, um, was really not optimized for this. And we're, and I would say we are, so we have learned very quickly and we are making the changes in real time that are, that are making it, you know, a little bit more like a pandemic response. And we'll have that pandemic response toolkit at the end of this, like, you know, for the, so be much more uh, ready and prepared for the next one. But again, I think there'll be a, there should be a lot of work post and a lot of coordination with health plans and retail, local retailers so that we can um, set up pop-up clinics and sites and, um, and have the mechanism for, uh, for reimbursement and, and messaging to clients and members of these plans. So that it's, you know, it can all be put in place. We're seeing so many learnings where our system uh, it was unprepared for this, not just doctor on demand, but I mean the whole system was not prepared. For this. So what are the big barriers today that have made it hard for you guys essentially to do your job? Like what, what do you think needs to change long-term for when next time this does happen, we're much better prepared? There's a, there are many things. I'm sure there's a long answer. To this long, one. Yeah, but, but, I'll, <laughs> but I think it's, it's a great question. Come on, we should look at a couple of examples. Yeah, I'd love to. So one example would be Medicare. You just heard the president get on and talk about the need to eliminate the state requirement for Medicare. But a lot of people might not, and the people understand that one, which is, oh yeah, let any doctor or nurse practitioner or what have you from any state see anyone from any state. That, that is, that's a, that's a, that's a big one um, that Medicare could do temporarily. And I think that the ability to do that temporarily is important in a moment like this. I'm not going to argue, you know, I think it's debated and some people would say, well, we should do that all the time. I, I can understand that states want to be able to regulate the physicians in their state, but, but in a time like this, you know, Medicare could have created that provision before this happened. Sure. Um, the other is the same site requirement. I think this is an example of one that's little, a little less known or identified for people who don't know Medicare well, but a Medicare patient in the past, up until yesterday, essentially, could not walk, could not directly do a telemedicine visit from their home. They were required to go into a, an origi- what's called an originating site. You had to go to a clinical site to then initiate the video visit or, 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 or telemedicine visit with a health technician. So you were not allowed to do it. So, so as you, as you think about this scenario, that, so you're saying the sickest, the, the vulnerable patients above age 65, we want them to go to a brick and mortar clinic and, and, and get seen where they could actually contract COVID-19. So, so I think this was that moment. That's why I was saying it's kind of a shame, but it took this moment for that to change. And the reason, but the reason why it was so hard because it take, it took an act of Congress. You've heard of that saying, right? Well, it's going to take an act of Congress. It literally took an act of Congress to make that happen. Um, and they drafted a bill and, and, um, and the, but the president and other, you know, they were very quickly able to get everyone aligned finally on that issue. 
and, 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 and remove it from being a political issue, but allowing it to be a public health issue. And then I think they, they saw very clearly what the right thing to do was. So, so we need to, um, you know, we need to look at the regulation and the structure of the regulation on a state level and national level to, um, to do this. And the final thing I'll say is reimbursement. Doctors don't do telemedicine now because the reimbursement has not been there and the, um, and the awareness has not been there. Um, everyone has sort of kept it on the side and that has really prevented doctors from adopting. And, uh, but patients clearly need it. So patients were adopting, but doctors have been late to the party. If you change the reimbursement and you create parity, then you'll, have, you'll, you'll make it affordable for doctors to build out the capabilities that they need within their own practice because it wouldn't it be nice if every doctor in the country could just turn, flip the switch and become a telemedicine doctor right away. That would have been very valuable here because they, you know, the, but right now you have doctors trying to figure out how they're going to see patients if their patients aren't going to come to their office. And in some cases, the doctors don't want the patients mm-hmm. to come to their office because they may be sick and the doctor is going to get sick. Yeah. I mean, I, I read, uh, there was some news, I don't know how accurate it was, that came out that said Doctor in the Man was trying to hire right now as many doctors as they could, essentially. And what, what, what is the pitch to doctors before, before COVID-19? Like, what, what was the uh, incentive that you guys are pitching to doctors to, to come on the platform? Yeah, it's a great question. It actually, I get that question a lot. was like, how hard was it to recruit and start the practice, right? Because I got to recruit the, the doctors in the very beginning as a medical director, you know, kind of building the practice brick by brick. The pitch then was really, and we were, we were competing with a pretty, you know, it wasn't that difficult, I should say, because we were competing with doctors who were fairly dissatisfied with the health system and the performance of the system. They felt inefficient in the system. They felt like the system was, was uh, manipulating them or, or, you know, and not valuing them. The, the pitch, if you will, was, was very straightforward. Uh, we predicted that there was a revolution coming, that healthcare needed to have transformation, right? You revolt, you revolt when things are getting bad, right? And then, and then what happens is things do transform and there ends up being a large change. And so I was telling doctors, I was using a surfing analogy with doctors saying, look, some doctors are going to stay on the beach and, and sit in the sun, but other doctors like you need to get into the water with your board and you need to start riding some of these little waves because there is going to be a big wave coming. And the big wave and that next set of waves if you, if you start riding with us now, you will be able to ride those larger waves when they come. And, um, and so that was a bit of the pitch. But I think the reality was, is it was really, um, it wasn't sunny on the beach. It was actually, you know, it was a situation where it was colder on the beach than it was in the water. <laughs> and so, so doctors were jumping into the water, grabbing a board and saying, let me, you know, let me, let me try this. Um, and the biggest thing is, I think, what doctors and patients are looking for is value. And the doctor wants, you know, the patient wants value in healthcare. So they're saying, maybe I don't need to go in. I, you know, but if I can connect to a doctor, I value that. I think doctors are saying, I want value. And so that not, might not mean that I get paid, you know, more to do this. But if you can remove, remove my administrative overhead, right? If you can let me focus on the patient care, that's what I got into this for. And, and that's really ends up being the pitch is that we can provide relationship-centered uh, care to our patients. And our doctors have autonomy, um, they can learn something new, and they can still get the reward of those relationships and, and feel like they're doing very good work with their patients. Does the way doctors get paid differ at all from standard practices? Yeah, yeah right now they're paid in a per visit uh, basis, um, but we do put 
we put quality measures in place, guardrails in place, so that there's not abuse of that system. Um, it's really not a big problem, though, to be honest, but we still have those guardrails there. Um, and then we do have a culture of our practice that we look for. Um, but our doctors can actually do very well. And what we have seen is actually visits are more efficient. So it doesn't take as long to do a virtual visit as it does to do a brick and mortar visit. In fact, it takes about half the time or maybe, you know, 0.6, 60% sure. of the time. That wasn't something we knew that was going to happen, but we've developed a nice experienced practice where our doctors are able to do great work. We've done over two and a half, I think, million visits at this point, And the quality is outstanding. Um, our 14 day revisit rates are, uh, are almost identical to in-office practice. So that means we're resolving cases with the same uh, level of accuracy and proficiency as in-office practice. Most of those visits are video visits as well. There are studies that show that telephone visits don't do that. You know, 100% of our medical visits to date or encounters to date have all been video-based. Yeah, how do you think about video versus things like text? Could asynchronous telemedicine right now during COVID, but also just longer term, play a larger role than it has? Yeah, I mean, I'm, a big, I'm actually a big fan of asynchronous modalities because I, at my work at the VA, the very first telemedicine clinic that I opened at the VA was actually an asynchronous diabetic teleretinal eye clinic. I opened up the first teleretinal eye clinic, I think, in the VA Palo Alto healthcare system and that had that remote capturing images at the originating site and then sending those images about 90 minutes worth of driving time over to the ophthalmologist for review. So I'm a big fan of those modalities. So I think they have their place, but I think that if it comes, but I, but I focus on a relationship centered care model. And I think that's what the value of primary care is. And so if you're talking about primary care, I would say that um, I think a relationship should be established. I think then the moda those other modalities can come in very handy and you can still deliver tremendous value to your patient population. But if you don't know them or you've only had a phone conversation with them, if you, never, if you can't recognize them in a crowd uh, when you see them, then, um, then I think that's far less of a relationship being there. And um, I'm not drawing a scientific proof line between seeing someone versus, versus uh, the clinical outcomes, but I can tell you that uh, there is da data and evidence that suggests that having a strong relationship with your patient does deliver the clinical outcomes that you want. And it's far more difficult to build that over text. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I actually do really like what Dr. On Demand is doing in expanding from just being like a one-time urgent care model to a longitudinal virtual primary care provider. Do you think that this is a trend that the entire industry will go towards? Or is this more unique to Dr. On Demand? I have no doubt that this is the trend. Uh, as I said, it will no longer be virtual care or telemedicine. You know, I think it will just be care and this will just be one of the ways you can get it. Doctor on Demand was the first telemedicine practice or virtual care practice to launch a virtual primary healthcare plan called On Hand with Humana. We did that last year and we have a similar plan, actually a more extensive plan that we're doing with Walmart that includes care management. And Walmart is really known as an innovator in this space of, of delivery because they're the largest employer in the country. They have the largest, they're really like a large health plan. And so they have done, um, you know, a fantastic job designing a program with us that, that enables virtual primary care for their population. And so I think we've really, I think we've really discovered a more efficient delivery method. And I think that everyone 
um, not just our competitors, but also brick and mortar practices will begin to build out hybrid models of virtual and in-person. It's just a more cost-effective way to, to deliver value-based care. Um, and so I think as long as we can get to parity on the payment side, that will give incentive for more brick and mortar practices to do it. Um, but before then, there's, I think there are a lot of value-based care models that should be employing uh, or deploying uh, virtual care modalities right now because they will be able to save tremendous amount of money and resources and cost. I, I love the vision of us going from telemedicine, telehealth to just becoming medicine and healthcare. And COVID obviously is pushing the field of telemedicine forward. Do you think this is sort of a, a temporary transient increase in, in usage and interest yeah. from the public right now and from leaders? Or is this more of just the beginning of a more permanent trend? I think this is a surge that we're seeing that will result in an increase in the baseline. I think we've set a new no I think we will set a new normal after this. The reason I say that is is um, not just because of awareness of, of, of each individual, but certainly that's happening um, because of the how this has dominated the news cycle, but but because of what we're seeing in terms of the distribution. We're seeing different pockets of the country and different ages in population of patients who are coming to us and registering. So this is sort of, you know, this has made its way now across a population of people that we were having a hard time reaching. They now know about this. They're now coming to it and they're registering for accounts and they're doing visits. We had, you know, we could have spent a lot of money and effort and, you know, lots of Super Bowl commercials to get to this point. But, but you know, I think, um, I think this is a, a surge that will not be maintained at this level, but I think it will set the new normal uh, because you're seeing now uh, those different pop, those those newer populations open their eyes to virtual care, and you're also seeing the health plans and Medicare realize how important now this modality is. So whether you're doing it because you need to have an emergency backup safety net plan for the case of a pandemic, or whether you just need to have a better uh, access point for your population, you know there's there's multiple reasons now to build out this capability, and and we're seeing that and being contacted by plans and, and, and employers all over the country uh, that have decided that it's time to move. What do you think the structure of the industry will look like five or let's say 10 years from now? Talked about having large platforms that provide longitudinal care, primary care, but right now there are lots of point solutions that are pretty successful, right? For things like mental health, dermatology, diabetes. Do you think the market will coalesce around a few one-stop shop platforms or will we still have all these point solutions? Great question. I think that the focus that, um, that COVID-19 is placing on the importance and the central uh, value proposition of telemedicine is going to elevate it to a point where it's going to become very important to be able to identify the, um, you know, the the pros from the chumps right there, there are there are there's a lot of companies out there there's a lot of noise and i would say when the buyer doesn't know the difference or the buyer doesn't care about the difference they might just buy on price or they might be attracted to something that says well that's just good enough because it checks a box but now in a time like this they're realizing oh actually this does matter and this is important and the quality of it is important and, the, and whether or not these doctors care or not, that's important too. And so I think that they're now realizing that that's gonna be important. And so I think you're going to see definitely winners and losers being picked and identified 
Um, and I hope they pick wisely. And so that those companies that have invested in, invested in the, Paul, um, the, the quality and, and service delivery, um, that, that, they, that I really hope that those, those companies that are focusing on that relationship-centered model are the ones that are gonna win. I think they probably will, because those will be the, the companies that are delivering the highest value to patients and doing it in a way that also, that will uh, create a sustainable path forward for the clinicians as well. You have to do that balance to create the model of the future. And so, because if we don't do that, let's face it, a lot of doctors aren't as, don't have as much grit as you guys. They may not stay in, you know, they may not stay in the game. They might be looking for their, you know, their exit strategy, but, but we need to have a, a sustainable career path for professionals. So the 10 year plan for me or vision for me looks like a hybrid model where there is consolidation of the, of the higher performing organizations um, and, and digital health providers uh, working with existing brick and mortar practices and health systems. And I think it will look a lot more around value-based care models. It, it, we will have to because we just can't afford the care to continue in the model that we're currently using. So, um, so that's what it's going to have to look like. And yeah, and obviously my hope is, you know, the doctor on demand is, is it playing its part or, or has played its part at least in helping everyone see that that's the reality of the future. And, um, and hopefully we're, we're able to establish a little bit of the model for how to get there. So you've always really worked towards health equity and trying to help every single person who needs it get the healthcare that they need. On top of everything that you've already mentioned today, is there anything that you're excited about to really help people of any background access affordable care? You know, you know what I'm really excited about? We learned this about our practice just a few months ago. We decided to look at, um, have a survey done of our practice and we asked our doctors, you know, do they have kids? And we, you know, what do they identify as their gender? And, and got some ethnic minority, uh, you know, sort of ethnicity data. Two thirds of our practice are uh, female, so are women in the practice. Um, high percentage of those, three quarters of them, I believe, have, uh, have children. 43% of our practice are ethnic minority and, and 21% are African-American. And so I'm just really excited that we have built a diverse practice. Um, it wasn't intentional, right? I mean, we, we, um, we wanted to definitely be an inclusive workplace. And so we, we did what we thought we needed to do to do that. But we did not hire, recruit, or look for uh, specific, you know, any specific doctor. But there's a reason why I mentioned that as, as something that, excite, you know, that I'm excited about. It's because our population in this country is changing. And, and it's happening on the coast, but I think it's also happening on the, in, the, in, you know, in, the, in, the, in the middle uh, uh, of America as well. And as the, the world and globe shrink and, uh, and we become you know, a, 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 a wider known medical practice, I'm just very excited about that because I would like to see more people from underserved communities or under-resourced communities take advantage of this offering. And so I'm really excited about government payers, Medicare, Medicaid. You know, we need to, to break down some of these regulations so that we can offer this service to the people that, that really have the highest burden of, of accessing care. And, um, and this is just a, it'll be unforgivable if we can't get to that. But I'm very excited that I think we have the practice that's going to provide, um, you know, a, a friendly face and, um, and compassionate care for those populations. As telemedicine becomes increasingly important, it's critical to train physicians to be able to do virtual patient care, virtual consults, 
develop a, a website manner. And you've been an instructor at Stanford Medical School for years. So how should we think about training clinicians in telemedicine? Yeah, this is a great question on how to train the future healthcare providers uh, and clinicians. This is a translation of what we do. So I think that education, a lot of the education we have, we should keep. I'm not saying we should throw it all out. Uh, however, we need to start putting certain opportunities for the translational pieces. So I think medical schools that aren't providing some bit of either immersive experience in telemedicine and are not building relationships with existing telemedicine practices so that their so that their students can't you know can get access to digital health platforms um, are doing their students a disservice because the patients want this. The the end user who is a patient or a member absolutely is going to adopt this now and we do not want a scenario where our doctors, our trainees are behind on this from where our patients are. Now, medical students can access these services as patients, certainly, and learn about them, but, but there's a great deal of translation that goes on. And, and so I think we do need to at least provide you with even a little bit of immersive experience just so you can see and think about how these models can perform so that as you go forward in your traditional, more traditional healthcare education, you're beginning to think already about what the future could look like. But I, but I like a little bit more cross-fertilization of ideas and learning. I think this is an instance in where the trainees actually have a great deal to bring to the table for the teachers and the instructors. So I can see much more collaborative workshops in, health, in, in, in healthcare education um, and in medical schools where the students are creating things new with, the, with their teachers, right? And where the faculty are working with their students to, to actually um, get in a lab, if you will, and experiment with some of these models. And I think to, to make those clinically useful, it probably is gonna require some partnership with the, with the private sector because that's where most of this innovative work is being done. The, you know, the people in academic medical centers are, I mean, they're just, it's just the hardest for them to change, right? They have a lot to lose to change. So. Mm -hmm. They're not in a position to like, they're winning, right? It's the system's great, you know, why change it? We, we have, we've negotiated all of our contracts and we're getting paid for our ICU and our, and our, and our chemotherapy. So, um, you know, right, we, we do a lot of echocardiograms, you know, right? They, they do, they, they've got a revenue model that they're happy with. So the change isn't gonna come from there. You know, it just, it just has to come, it has to get disrupted before it's gonna change. This COVID-19 might be the, that's why, that's partly why I called it this huge disruptive force, because. It has, it's shaken, you know, I think it's shaken some of the medicine to its foundation of like, do we need to change our model a bit? And I think this has kind of shown us, yeah, we do. We, we got to change some things that have been in place for decades. Medicare, that's a big deal. Medicare saying they're going to remove the originating site. That's a, that, like, that was a barrier. And it was built on an old model of telemedicine. But we're way beyond that now, you know. But we did it, but it, but it, it was a shame that it took this to, you know, to get there, so. Could you talk us through a little bit, what has the journey looked like to becoming the CMO of a major innovative healthcare company? Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a long story. I'll give you the Cliff's Notes version. I would just say that I was a very normal, I think, medical student. I was fortunate enough to go to a great undergraduate at the University of California, Berkeley. I then went to uh, medical school at the University of Chicago. And, and then from there, I got to go to Stanford. And so joined, you know, I was at Stanford as an internal medicine resident. 
I was asked to be a chief resident, and I think that changed my trajectory. I got a peek at systems-based practice, sort of behind the curtain. I, I, I got to do my clinic as a chief, was at the VA healthcare system, and that ended up resulting in my first job, uh, being at the VA as a clinician, and I launched a, an outreach program for them for homeless veteran outreach. And then at the same time, I was also uh, doing education and, and teaching in the medical school at Stanford. And so it was along those two pathways or, uh, that, that, or that ran parallel. I learned about telemedicine and systems-based practice from the VA. And then I learned about education and a deeper knowledge of bedside physical examination at Stanford and how to, and how to train people to do that. And so if you think about those two pathways, they intersected. They didn't stay parallel. They intersected at a point in my career that presented itself as the opportunity to become the medical director at Doctor on Demand. And, um, and it seemed like a very logical progression. I went from providing access to care for homeless veterans and rural veterans and using telemedicine to do that to using telemedicine to provide care for all comers first in a direct-to-consumer fashion, but then as a uh, covered benefit for employee, employees of large companies and members of large national health plans. And so that's, that's where we've sort of, you know, have kind of fast-forwarded to where I am now. And we have launched uh, a number of uh, different clinical practices there. Uh, but we, as we were growing, Doctor On Demand saw the need to um, to expand its leadership team and, and make some changes. And as that happened, I got the opportunity to move from medical director to chief medical officer. And, um, and I had already built the clinical training uh, program, the clinical guidelines for, and the scope of practice for how virtual care could be provided. And so we ended up with a virtual urgent care, a virtual behavioral health practice that are integrated and a virtual primary care practice. So all, all three of those integrated into one, um, and that's why now we, uh, we now offer a virtual primary care uh, option and health plan that we've done with Humana, and then also, um, yeah, continue to, to talk about and, and market our virtual primary care practice uh, to large employers and plans. Thank you for listening to the BIOS podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave a review on your favorite podcasting platform. For more content, please visit bios.community or alix.vc.